Hi, I'm your host, Lillian Yang. And I'm your host, Fakri Shafai, and you are listening to Food Nonfiction, the incredible true stories behind food. This is the incredible true story of the Poison Squad. Back when Heinz first started selling ketchup in 1875, the food industry was rife with unpalatable practices. For example, tomato canning companies made ketchup out of rejected tomatoes and scraps that they swept right off the floor. Dirt, insects, animal waste, these were things you could find in your sauce. Factories had such poor food handling processes that barrels of ketchup would sometimes explode from all the pent-up gases that bacteria were making inside. That is so gross. There was a big problem with food purity. In the 1870s, these problems were starting to be publicized. While the public already had their suspicions about foods made outside of the home, now they had proof that the store-bought food products were often unsanitary. By the 1890s, food purity was becoming a state issue, and investigations into food purity were launched. But there was no leader in the food purity movement until Harvey Wiley came along. He was the chief chemist in the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Like H.J. Hines, the natural salesman, Wiley was a persuasive person. And you'd have to be to persuade Congress to fund human experimentation with food additives that were possible poisons. Which is exactly what he did. Wiley described the experiment as hygienic table trials and the press soon named Wiley's subjects the Poison Squad. The Poison Squad consisted of 12 young, healthy clerks, all male and all employees of the Department of Agriculture. They had all passed a civil service exam, proving their reliable and moral character. One of them was a former Yale sprinter. Why did they volunteer? They were promised a small salary and free board. The lab was built in the basement of the Agriculture of Department building. The experiment started in the fall of 1902. Here's how it was set up. The 12 volunteers were split into two groups of six. One group ate pure food and the other group ate poisoned food. Every two weeks, the groups would switch so that all the volunteers were exposed to poisoned food. Borax was the first preservative to be tested. It was chosen as the first because it was very commonly used. At first, they tried to hide it in the butter, but the participants could taste its metallic flavor and stopped buttering their bread. Then they tried to hide it in the milk, but again, the participants could taste it and started avoiding the milk. Finally, they gave up hiding the borax and gave it to the six participants in the poison group in capsules. They did add a little twist to this by having five capsules with borax, and one empty capsule. The first group of volunteers committed to six months, but one source mentioned that they stayed longer than that. The rules were strict. The poison squad was not allowed to eat or even drink outside of mealtimes, during which everything they consumed was prepared by scientists. They were stripped, weighed, and had their physical condition assessed before each meal. The volunteers also kept their urine and feces in a satchel they gave to the chemists each day. The public loved it. Poems like The Song of the Poison Squad were printed in magazines countrywide. Harvey Wiley tried to silence the media, which was making light of, and even poking fun at, his study. 
By the way, we'll post the lyrics to the Song of the Poison Squad on our Facebook page, so drop by. His Poison Squad was no longer allowed to speak of the experiments. But the media blackout only made things worse. The press started to print wild stories. For example, that one volunteer shaved his head and was ordered to run back to the barbershop to collect his hair for weighing. To be clear, we don't have any evidence that this did or did not happen. But it seemed like the press was conjuring up tales during the media blackout. So the media blackout was lifted. The second phase of testing used salicylic acid and began the next fall in 1903. In 1903, Wiley was quoted as saying, The loss of tail, hair, teeth are all steps forward toward human perfection. Man's brain is growing and takes nutriment from the hair which falls out and consequently is growing less abundant year by year. And then he reveals his contempt for women, which is why women were not involved in the study not even being fit to cook the adulterated meals. Now, you take a woman. A woman still has long hair, but that's because a woman is still a savage. Notice how fond she is of gaudy colors. Her brain hasn't the capacity of a man's. In 1904, Wiley released his final report on borax. He concluded that it should be banned from foods because his volunteers had stomach pains and lasting headaches. The experiments went on for five years. During that time, they tested other poisons like formaldehyde and copper sulfate. After the experiments, Wiley's superior, the Secretary of Agriculture, James Wilson, wanted to expand the experiments to the weak and sickly. As in, he wanted to try the effects of borax on infants and invalids. Fortunately, Wiley didn't see much added value to expanding the experiment, although he didn't seem to have any issues about the part about testing babies. While Wiley's experiments did make its way into the public's consciousness and focused more interest on food purity, the final push was the publication of The Jungle by Upton Sinclair in 1906. The book exposed disgusting slaughterhouse conditions and careless inspectors. People were horrified. With public concern focused so strongly on food purity, President Theodore Roosevelt was forced into action. First, the Meat Inspection Act was passed. Then the Pure Food and Drug Act was passed. Finally, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration was formed all in 1906. The push for food purity was a huge uphill battle. Big companies formed alliances to lobby against food purity laws because implementing changes for food purity would cost them money. Standards would need to be raised and new processing methods would need to be created if certain chemicals could no longer be used. And of course, food betterment issues are still an uphill battle today. Without influential political and industry support, the food purity movement would have been crushed by the powerful lobbyists against food purity laws. Fortunately, the H.J. Heinz Company was an industry supporter of the pure food movement. Henry Heinz brought along his son, Howard, and his right-hand man, Sebastian Mueller, to join Wiley in the fight for food purity. Heinz's son Howard had gone to Yale and made many influential friends there, and Heinz's right-hand man Sebastian 
was respected as an expert on food manufacturing. Around this time, Teddy Roosevelt had just risen to presidency in 1901. When Roosevelt asked why a food processing company such as H.J. Heinz would want to support food purity, the issue of home canning came up. With the public becoming more and more distrustful of factory-produced foods, it became popular to can one's own food. The mason jar had just been invented in 1868, and they had become increasingly cheaper to buy because factories were turning to automation. With home canning getting easier and more affordable, people thought, why not can your own food when factory food has so many problems? Fortunately for H.J. Heinz, customers flocked to Heinz products because Heinz was developing such a strong reputation of food purity. So why was Heinz able to make ketchup without preservatives when no one else could? Well, in the beginning, Heinz did use preservatives, just like their competitors did. But in the early 1900s, they were able to make preservative-free ketchup thanks to a lot of persistence. They started their search for a preservative-free ketchup recipe by studying homemade ketchup recipes with longer shelf lives. They found that adding more salt, sugar, vinegar, and pulp increased shelf life naturally. With the added pulp, the ketchup became thicker. Ketchup used to be a lot more watery. The thicker ketchup added a problem, however. This meant the ketchup required bottles with wider openings for the ketchup to come out but wider openings meant more air could get in, decreasing the shelf life. So Heinz had to try different lids. At one point, they tried wire cork tops. Eventually, they started using the screw top bottles, which we're so familiar with today. The tomatoes that went into the preservative-free ketchup had to be perfect. There's a balance of pectin and pectic acid that exists in perfectly ripe tomatoes, that led to a better shelf life for the ketchup made from these tomatoes. But perfect tomatoes cost money. When tomatoes had to be transported, refrigerated cars needed to be used. Many tomatoes were rejected, and the ones that passed inspection had to be washed twice. The factory had to be extremely clean. The pureed tomato juice was passed through silver tubes that prevented bacteria growth. All the handling systems and floors had to be washed daily. And that's how Heinz was connected to the pure food movement. I find it incredible that all these things happened in 1906. These huge changes for food quality. Really, yeah. And I'm glad. Yeah, <laughs> Thank I'll be, it's good to We it live happened. in a world where things are clean. Well, I mean, yes. Relatively so. Not everything. Yeah. All right, food buffs, join us next week. And in the meantime, have a great week with lots of good food. Bye. Bye. Bye.